You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Some of the title of my sermon this morning, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Uh, this morning, we, we, we are going back to our Gospel of John series. Uh, we're going to sort of take a break on that for uh, about a month or so until, we, until maybe July or August and uh, when uh, we sort of get a rhythm uh, back in service. Of the, as most of you know, June is going to be very busy with plenty of weddings from various members of our congregation. And so uh, instead of having to stop and start that series over and over again, we'll just take a break and do some standalone sermons. We're going to get some guest speakers come in uh, in the month of June uh, to, to share the Word of God to us. Now, when, when studying Scripture, there's an important rule called the rule of repetition whenever you look into Scripture. Whenever something is repeated, often twice or three times in Scripture, there's an emphasis, an importance to that. But also, sometimes it's to denote some sort of distinction. For example, when Scripture says that God is holy, 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 Three times holy, it means that he is completely set apart. No one can reach that level of holiness as God has. And uh, similarly, whenever there's repetition in our own lives, particularly in our walk with God, in what God is bringing up and, and, and mustering up into our own lives and what he's speaking to us, I think it's very important to stop and, and really listen to what God wants to say to us, and uh, for example, if maybe you've ever had, if you've had this experience before, where where God keeps bringing up a topic in your life. There was a woman that visited our church on uh, on Easter uh, this past Easter, and and she was mentioning how in her devotional time God was talking to her about forgiveness. And in this one podcast that she was listening to, God was talking to her about forgiveness. And then sure enough, on Easter, on our Easter service, the message was on forgiveness. So it seemed like God was telling her something, uh, and something had to do with forgiveness. And it's very much that way, and it's been like this for, in my life for uh, at least the past few months or so. This question kept arising, or this question was really burdened on my heart um, in terms of my own walk with God. What is the Christian life about? What is a Christian life about? And interestingly enough, I, I started reading this book by John Calvin. It's called A Little Book on the Christian Life, a really good read, very short read. And I suggest you, you pick up this book too if, if you want to see what's in there. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, from this book and some, from other pastors that I've been listening to and from even social media posts that I've been uh, following uh, online, this, this theme has been repeated time and time again. And the answer, the, the, the answer to this question of what is the Christian life about has been coming to me over and over again. Um, the three things being to love God more, to, to, um, to deny yourself, and to renew your mind. Those three things, to love God more, to deny yourself, and to renew your mind. It's been coming up in this book, I get, like I said, it's, come, it's coming up in, in podcasts that I'm listening to and, and, and posts that I'm, I'm seeing online. And so it seems like God is really trying to say something to me, for sure. 
Love God more. That is the, the first and greatest commandment, right? It, it, is, it is about relationship with him. And to deny yourself, that is taking up your cross daily and to the, the pursuit of holiness and purity. But it's also to love others more than yourself. That, that is also implicated into, in self-denial and also the renewal of mind. To not be conformed to the patterns of this world. This is, this is time and time again brought up in Scripture. Paul says in Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And these three themes are written throughout the, throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, and make the sum of, how, of, of, of Christian living, of our walk with God of our, the process of sanctification, these three themes become more evident, as, more evident in a growing believer, in a growing Christian. It's really how we become more like Christ, that, that we love God just as the Son loved Him, that we become sacrificial, denying even, even ourselves for, for the betterment of others, just like the Savior. And as Paul says, Again, that our minds would be renewed to, to have the mind of Christ, to think and reason like the Savior. These three themes, themes keep being repeated throughout Scripture. Now, our passage reinforces all of these things, and, and it tells us, as, tells us how believers in Christ should conduct themselves in order to be like Christ in the world. Hence the title, Christ is all and in all. In verse 11 of our passage, Paul says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. All of these identifying markers that anyone, in, at least in Paul's days, would have identified themselves as. He's saying there's none of that now. But Christ is all and in all. That's the new identifying marker of of someone who is a believer, someone who is a child of God, a citizen of heaven. We talked about this a little bit in the, at the retreat. Uh, we discussed uh, the, the desires of, or the cravings of what a, a citizen of heaven should be, what the people of God should be looking after, the kingdom of God and, and His righteousness first and foremost. It should be at the top of our priorities, the top of our pursuits as believers. And our hope, for, um, our hope for this morning is that, that we would unpack what that entails more and more as we unpack our passage. How, how do we curve the, the appetites of the flesh, the cravings of the flesh that we still struggle with while we are still in this world, while we are, while we are sojourners in this world, so that we can grow deeper in love with God, so that we can really and truly faithfully deny ourselves to pick up our cross daily and follow him. And, of course, so that we can renew our minds, renew our perspectives, our worldviews. Listen, if, if you're a believer and you're struggling with the desires of this world, the desires of the flesh, with sin and its passions, that with the inclinations, your, your, your natural inclinations to the things of this world, and you want to honor God, but things aren't changing, you're still struggling. You're still going through the old routines and the old habits and the old mentalities. Listen, this message is for you. Paul, in his passage, describes how we can put to death the old self, the sin in our lives. And, and listen, you know, 
this past weekend at the retreat was amazing. It was a great time, but I don't know about you. Um, just literally on 10 minutes on the drive home, I felt withdrawal. Anyone else? I was like, ah, I just want to go back. Right? And it wasn't just because it was, you know, a lot of food and, or, or and all activities and, and whatnot, but it's really your presence, right? You know, the presence of God's people and God's presence and just that great spiritual time that we, we, we got in the, during the, that whole retreat. I wanted, I wanted that. And I knew just ha- having to go back home that it's like, it's not going to be like that. It won't be like that in a sense that, you know, I don't have to, you know, I can't just open my door and see Brother Dave ready to dive into the lake, right? Like, or, or fellowship with everybody at, at, at the dinner table. There's a sense of withdrawal and, 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 you know, the moment we got home, it's like, oh, now, it, like, I got Wi-Fi again. And, uh, you know, we can uh, watch a video on YouTube or Netflix. And, yeah, I, I could feel those, those again, those, those, those earthly cravings, the cravings of the flesh starting to creep up again. And, and really, the, the, the principles that Paul teaches in our, in our passage what he prescribes in our passages is, is what we need in our lives, what we need to do in our lives in order to keep those, those cravings at bay, those fleshly desires at bay, so that we would truly behave and think as aliens in this world, as citizens of another kingdom, of another world, as ambassadors of a greater kingdom. That's our goal for us this morning, to really unpack how can we curve those appetites, how we can put to death those cravings that should not be in those who are citizens of heaven. So let's jump into our passage and let's unpack uh, Paul's letter for us this morning, Paul's prescription on how to become more like Christ and how do we curve those, um, those, those, those cravings. So let's begin with with. with Sort of Paul's premise for this chapter in, in verse 1 to 2. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ. That's a big if. If you truly have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. See, Paul is describing the aim of, of those who have been saved and those who are citizens of heavens while we are here in this world. To seek the things above while we are here below. It, it, it has that same, that same premise, sort of the same notion in, in, in that passage in Matthew chapter 6 where, where Jesus himself says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And Paul gives a big reason as to why this should be our priority while we are here in this world. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, For you have died. For you have died. Don't skip over that part. This is, this is, there's a lot of weight just from that statement. You have died. And I think oftentimes when we see this same phrasing throughout Scripture, we totally miss the point of this, the gravity, the weight of it. Listen, as citizens of heaven, who we were is dead. Who we were before conversion, before God regenerated our, our stone hearts is dead. 
has been crucified to the cross of Jesus Christ is alive nor, no more. And along with it, our, our sins and our former passions, our, our former proclivities, they have died with it as well. Thus, they should no longer govern how we live in this world. Thus, we should no longer be attracted, be, be in the same pursuits as a, of the things that we once pursued in our former sinful life. And then Paul continues, says, For you have died, and your life is hidden within God. The word there for life in the Greek is zoe, not simply meaning our physical life, but our spiritual life. It denotes the, our complete existence and identity. It's now tied and hidden in Christ, meaning it's secured, it's with him, it's sourced in him, through him. We find our life only in Christ. Hence why in verse 4, Paul goes on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul gives a very, uh, very current reality of, of, or the status of believers in this world. He says, first and foremost, we have died. Our old self is dead. Everything we were prior to Christ is dead. Our old mentalities, our old habits, our old desires, they are all dead. They no longer define us. Secondly, he says, we are alive. We are alive in Christ. Everything that we are today, our entire life, both physical and spiritual, is in Christ. It's tied to Christ. And then Paul gives a very detailed description of how all of that looks like practically, right? In verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore. So again, if then you have been raised with Christ, right? You're dead, your, your past self is dead, and you are alive in Christ today. So, so how that looks like now in our day-to-day -day living is this. He says in, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let me break this down a little. These are things that, that Paul is telling us to put to death, which, is, which, is, which sort of is contradictory if you think about it, because he says you're already dead, but you have to put this to death. How does that make sense? We'll get into that in a moment. But first, let's talk about how, or, or rather, the things that, Paul is saying that we must put to death first. He says sexual immorality. The, the, the more, more closer word for that is fornication. And in the original Greek, it's, it's pornea, where we get the word pornography, pornography from. Literally, in the, in, in the imagery of the Greeks, it literally means to sell off one's purity. All that, 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 that's, that includes, by the way, all forms of sexuality. Or, 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 that, that, or sexual sin, rather. All forms of sexual sin, whether it's adultery, whether it's premarital sex, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's incest, whether it's bestiality, all of it, we are to put it to death. Then he goes on to say impurity. All impurity is to be put to death. That refers to, that refers to the impure thoughts. That refers to impure desires, even impure fantasies. 
Then he says passion and evil desire. That's talking about lust and, and both. So you have passion, which is the, 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 the emotional lust and lusting after something. And then evil desire, that's, that's, the, that's the mental part of things. So you have the, both the physical part of, of lusting after something and the mental part of it as well. So passion, evil desire, then covetousness. That's the insatiable desire to want more, to need more. And because it's tied to all these sexual sins, it's talking about this covetousness of the flesh, desiring something that is not in your season, that is not appropriate for believers. And of course, idolatry. He ties it all together with idolatry. See, when we pursue these things in life, this laundry list of things, of sin, This lifestyle is ultimately a lifestyle of worship to the self or to the flesh. It's ultimately what homosexuality is. It's also ultimately what transgenderism is. It's a law to the altar of the flesh. Altar to oneself. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All of these things, if this is the lifestyle we pursue in this life, understand that is idolatry. We are worshipping our flesh. We are worshipping the human form and a fantasy, an ideal And Paul says that citizens of heaven should put all of that to death. We must, and this is, this is the first thing we have to understand. We must put to death what is earthly. This is Paul's first command, his first point, his first prescription to how we curve these desires. We must put to death what is earthly. Now, again... We can't skip this statement. We can't lose the emphasis and the gravity of this statement. And as we mentioned earlier, how does this make sense? If, we just, if Paul mentioned that we have already died with Christ, how are we then putting to death what is earthly? This word for put to death is the Greek word necro, to view as a corpse. As, he, as in, as in to, to view it without life or review these sinful acts, specifically these sinful acts as, as being dead, inoperative, no longer beneficial to anything. So in one sense, Paul is saying we have already died. Our former self has already died with Christ. That's one, that's one reality. That's one truth. But then he's also calling us to now then, if if that is the reality, if that's the truth, we must then view those sinful acts, the desires of the flesh, as dead as well. We must view them as no longer being beneficial for anything, as desirable, as something that we, we, we long for. Sin is already dead at the cross with Jesus, but to know that reality and to, to, to live in the effects of that, live in that truth, to live in, in, in light of the corpse of sin hanging on the cross is completely different. A lot of Christians think they are putting sin to death, but they are simply putting sin to sleep until 
cravings start to come up again. Until they find it convenient again. Until they need to find some sort of earthly or material comfort. Then they'll go back to their sin. But again, the call here is to put it to death. No longer see it as beneficial. No longer see it as alive. No longer see it as something that we can gain something from. It's just a corpse. The word there in the original Greek also calls it or, or is used to, is to describe something that is mortified, deprived of life or power. We are to put it to death. See, picture this for a moment, okay? When, when a believer sins, when a believer turns to sin, it's like a child suckling on the teeth of a putrefied corpse. You got that imagery? I saw some of the reaction, the facial reaction. Ugh. That's right. Wait, is it a little too strong? Is that imagery a little too? Okay, how about this? Let me try this imagery. When believers sin, it's like taking a bite out of a blackened, maggot-filled, green-crusted slab of raw meat to satisfy a hunger. Ugh. That's not any better? Sorry, okay, let me, I know we're in the house of the Lord. We need to, you know, just, ugh, that's a little too much for church. How about this one? When believers sin... It's like drinking water from a fecal-stained toilet bowl in order to satisfy your thirst. Is that imagery too much? Listen, we are to have the same reaction towards sin. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage. That sin is dead. It is a rotting corpse on the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as believers, as citizens of heaven, we should not desire after it. We should not desire to gain anything from it, to be satisfied from it, to be, to be sustained by it, to be comforted by it. It is dead. It is rotting on the cross. Paul is saying, look at it this way. It is dead. It is a corpse slain and crucified to the cross of Jesus Christ. And our response to sin should be disgust. It should, it, it should cause us to have that same reaction. And listen, not merely because of the lack of benefit it has to a child of God, but listen, if you are truly a child of God, you, you must view sin as disgusting, as horrific, because we know that it is our sin that nailed our beloved Savior to the tree. Because we know that it's that sin, that same sin, our sin, that crucified Christ. Now listen, the reality of putting our old self to death, you have to understand it doesn't happen all at once. Again, we're still in the flesh. We're, we're still having to struggle in this, this flesh and, and the sin of our flesh and until Christ returns or he takes us home. And as a result, we, are, we have those desires. It's still built in us. It's a process. But that's why Jesus himself says, Luke chapter 9, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
It is a daily process. A daily reminder to ourselves that we, we are dead to that. We, we, we no longer have those desires. We no longer have to find satisfaction and joy and comfort and hope in the things that are already rotten. In the, in the sin, in the corpse of sin. That's how we put to death what is earthly. We must regard sin as already dead. And Paul says this for good measure. He gives good reason for this. Look at verse 6 with me. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. So he gives two reasons as to why we must look at sin this way. First and foremost, God's wrath is coming against that same sin. That same sin that we, 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 we used to practice, that we have inclinations and desire to still practice, God's wrath is coming to that, or if not, has already come to that. We don't need to look too far to see that in our world. God's wrath, even especially His passive wrath, His judgment on society today. But as, as he says in, in, in verse 7, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, he's saying, that's not you anymore, brothers and sisters. It's not you anymore. And he continues. Look at verse... Uh, let's, go, well, let's go to verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obed- uh, sorry, obscene talk with your, from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. He lists a couple more things here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Now, though at face value, it seems like Paul is listing more sinful things, things that we should avoid as believers. And it seems like, at least in this category, these are things that come from our mouth. Slander, obscene talk, lying. Even wrath, right? The things that we can say in anger. But in reality... The things that he's listing are heart issues, heart conditions. Look at Matthew chapter 12 with me. This is Jesus saying, uh, saying these things. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings good forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying, what, what you say reveals what's in your heart. You've heard maybe the, the saying that, well, you know, the eyes are the windows to the soul. Jesus is saying, it's not the eyes, it's actually your words, what you produce, what you come out in saying so now back to Paul, right? He lists these things. And, and again, these are not just verbal things. These are rooted in, in heart conditions. Whether it's anger, that's the bitterness of one's heart. And then from that, wrath spews forth sudden out, outbursts of anger. Again, stemming from that bitter heart. Malice, in the original Greek word, it refers to the wickedness of one's heart, the inherent evil that is in our hearts. 
that taints any external action. That's what malice is. That's where slander comes from. In the original Greek, slander is the same word there for blasphemy. But because it's towards people, it's, it's, it's when you are devaluing and defacing people of their worth, of, their, or, or of the image of God that they are, the, the, the image bearer of God that they are. And of course, obscene talk, lewdness, verbalizing the sexual impurities that is, that is festering in one's heart and mind, and lying. This is probably the greater uh, damnation to, to those who practice such things. Uh, if you recall back in John chapter 8, Jesus himself says that the devil is the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Thus, those who lie speak from their heart, speak from their evil character, and draw comparison to themselves with the enemy, with the devil himself. Now, all of this, again, stemmed from malice, the wickedness of one's heart. Paul says that we are to put that away, put it off. He says the second point, the second command that he gives from this passage is, to put off the old self. To put off the old self. So the first one is that he says to put it to death. Now he's saying to put off the old self. The original Greek word there is apetitivame. To put off or to lay aside. Somewhere the, the imagery is a worker coming home with dirty clothes and having to undress and put away his dirty clothes to get rid of it. The imagery invokes that of filthy clothing that needs to be removed from one's body. But even more so, the, the, the same Greek word that, that, that is used here is also used for the word renounce. To renounce something. To renounce something means that you're actively declaring one's rejection, your rejection or abandonment over that thing. Your outright refusal to entertain, to pursue, to delight in. You're renouncing something. See, a lot of us know that sin is bad. But how many of us can truly say that we hate sin? We hate sin. We know that something, it's, it's totally different when you know something is bad. It's not good for me, it's not beneficial to me. It's dead, just as we talked about Paul's first point. But it's something completely different to renounce it, to completely hate it, to reject it, to refuse it. I don't want anything to do with it. It's interesting, Paul's play on words, right? He says, he says put off the old self or renounce these things. Don't talk this way anymore. But, but do the opposite. Condemn it. Reject it. Renounce it completely. We are to reject sin in our lives. We are to condemn it. Not something to see it with disgust, but to reject it completely. Because that rejection is what repentance is. Listen, I, 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 I used to live this way. I no longer see it beneficial. It is just disgusting to me. Therefore, I am going this way, away from that sin. I am refusing it completely. That's how you renounce it. It's a hatred towards 
sin. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians and talks about godly grief, that how, how it ought to, to, to bring us to a place of godly sorrow or our sin. That it ought to produce in us an earnestness, an eagerness to, to clear ourselves of that sin, to, a righteous indignation towards sin, a longing and a concern for holiness, a desire for the things that are good. Even a readiness to see justice done. He, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. We must hate sin. A good way to listen, you know, if that's you and having, you're struggling with sin in your life, a, way, a good way to, to curve the sin in your life when temptation comes is not. See, oftentimes when temptation comes, the only thought that comes in our mind is the benefit of sin, which is often a lie, right? Again. There's no more benefit in sin and things of this world to believers. The lie in temptation is that, oh, the good that we can receive, the comfort, the freedom, the, 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 the rest, the satisfaction that we can get from sin, that's the first thing that comes into our minds when temptation comes. But we need to think beyond that, beyond that lie, see past it, and think about the consequences of sin. Think about the damages of sin, the hurt of sin, how it affects you, not only how it affects you, but how it affects your family, those around you, your coworkers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your Christian witness. You want to curve sin in your life? If you want to build a, a hatred towards sin, think about the damage sin can do to others around you. To those you love. This, by the way, is our active participation, our part in the process of sanctification. Where we must obey. Where we must follow after Christ. Where we must turn and repent. That's our part in this process of sanctification. And again, because Paul is not just addressing sort of these verbal things that we can fall short in. He's addressing or dealing with things of the heart. These are, this is not, when we renounce sin, it's not merely declaring something as evil or wretched or saying out loud that you hate sin. It, it, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart, completely rejecting it, renouncing it. Having to remind oneself, even in our internal monologue, that sin is evil. That sin is hurtful. It's refusing it in our hearts. It, it, whether that's getting rid of the, the root of bitterness that can grow in us, as Hebrews 12 talks about, or whether it's having to, the need to, to bridle our, our tongue, as James talks about. Or whether it's just simply the, the wrestling of sin in our daily life. Again, picking up our cross daily to follow Christ. That picking up of our cross daily denotes a suffering, a denial of self, similar to Christ. But again, ultimately, it's repentance. It's choosing to go the other way, to pursue the good rather than what is evil. 
And, and Paul, just as he'd been doing, he, he gives good reason for this, why we must put away sin or the former self. Look at verse 9 with me. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on now the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is saying that we must put these things away because now we are being renewed. Our minds are being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator, after the image of Christ. That's sanctification. That's the end goal that, that, that Paul is talking about here. Why we must put to death. Why we must put things away. Because we are being made into the image of the Savior. Of the Creator. Of Jesus. And, and again, notice how that process of sanctification is in the form of, of our minds being renewed. And renewed in knowledge, he says in our passage. Renewal of the mind. Again, he talks about this in Romans 12. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, just as the old man has died with Christ, we are now to rise as the new man in Christ. We are literally and figuratively putting on Christ, His righteousness. You know, oftentimes in Easter, this past Easter even, we, we, we talked about double imputation. Doctrine of double imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange where Christ takes our sin and puts it onto Himself and He places His righteousness onto us so that we would stand justified before the Father. Now, oftentimes we talk about double imputation in the sense of, of conversion, of coming to faith, again, of justification. But that imputation of Christ, or that Christ crediting his righteousness to us, also applies to sanctification. In the process of regeneration and justification, we are given the ability not just to stand before God as holy and acceptable, but then to live out, given the ability to live out Christ's righteousness in this life. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Great uh, verse of the Reformation, a, a key verse to our faith. He says, for, for Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We understand that. We believe that. Amen, amen, amen. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ, Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so though we are not saved by good works, we, are, we were saved through faith, just as that passage says, faith in Jesus Christ, so that we could do good works. That is the fruit of our salvation. So that we can walk in the righteousness of Christ. So that we can choose the things of Christ. So we can choose what is godly and not what is evil. 
This is why we must put off the old self, put to death sin in our lives, and put on the new self. Because what we are putting on and what we, have, what we are putting on is Christ himself. And what we have been enabled to do in that process is the, is the works of Christ in this life. His righteousness. And how does this look like? Look at verse, again, Paul gives a whole list of things. Verse 12 to 16. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He says, compassionate hearts. These are the things that we are to put on. These are the things that, uh, these are the things that we should crave over, over now and long after as believers, as citizens of heaven. These are the things that we ought to demonstrate, the things that should spew from our hearts as Children of God, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Meekness not in the sense of weakness or timidness. In the original Greek, another word for it is gentleness. means to have a gentle strength, an expression of power, of controlled strength. He says patience, bearing with one another. And that means that, you know, we must walk with one another through trials. And forgiveness, just as we have been forgiven, and above all else, he says, love. Do everything in love. These are the things that we should crave for, crave to do as believers. He goes on to say that we are to demonstrate peace in our hearts, be thankful, to to show gratitude, allowing for the word of God to dwell in our hearts so that we can teach others. Not just teach others, but he also says so that we can sing praises. Worship songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It only comes from us allowing the Word of God to dwell in our hearts as we linger there. And in verse 17, Paul caps it all off. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the call. We are to do everything. We are to now live for Christ. Because again, Paul's command is to put on Christ. Put on Christ. That's what Paul means in this, in this final verse. Do everything in the name of the Lord. Similar to how when, when we pray and we end each prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. The way that we are, live, that we are living in this world ought to communicate and represent Christ in this world. As though our our very words, our very deeds, our very actions in this life is what Christ would do. We live as Christ's representatives in this world, as his ambassadors, as though it is Christ himself speaking and acting and living in this life. I mean, look at that list that we just read off. Everything listed there reflects who Jesus is. It's how he lived in his earthly ministry here. And we are to live to that same degree, to that same standard. That's what we are called to, to live by. Paul's point in all of this is that we are no longer to live for ourselves because ourselves is dead on the cross. But as representatives of Christ in this world, we are to live 
for Christ. He says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, or those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is why we must put to death, put away our old self, put to death the sin in our lives. Because listen, what image of the Savior are we giving to the world if we don't? What kind of Christ are we depicting to the world when we are still craving after the things of this world? And we're still pursuing the things of this world? Listen, for many unbelievers in our lives, we are the only representative of Christ in their lives. Only depiction of Christ. You might have unbelieving friends. They've never probably read the Bible. So the way that you live your life, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you hold your testimony, your witness to them, for the most part will be their depiction of Christ in this world. What are you showing them? Brothers and sisters, we must strive daily deny ourselves daily to pursue a renewal of our mind and our heart in the word daily that we may be good representatives of Christ in this world. That we might demonstrate to this fallen world, this hopeless world, how citizens of heaven, citizens of a kingdom, of another kingdom should be like, should behave like. Christ is all that we are now and should be in all that we do. That is, that is the purpose of the believer. That is, that is the purpose of, of sanctification in our life is to be more like Christ. And listen, maybe you're sitting here and, and you know, you're, you're looking at your own life, you're evaluating your own life and you're examining your walk with God and you're thinking, you know what, like, man, I, there's so many ups and downs. I'm trying to pursue the Lord and I, I keep on failing. You're, you're, you, oftentimes, maybe you're thinking even to yourself, like, you know, am I even a believer? Because I'm, I'm still craving these things. I'm still longing after these things. And Listen, you have to understand that the trajectory of the believer in sanctification is not immediate perfection. Sanctification does not look like immediate perfection. Really, what it looks like is incremental progress. Oftentimes, we get discouraged because we looked at our life and, and like, man, you know, like, I, I'm still struggling in this sin. I'm still thinking this way. I'm still pursuing these things in my life. And as a believer in Christ, as a child of God, it ought to grieve your heart that you have sin in your life. But you should not be discouraged or become disillusioned or, or feel defeat. Because the reality of, of sanctification is that God grows us on multiple fronts. 
We know the, the, the fruit of the Spirit talk, that Paul talks about in Galatians. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So how sanctification really looks like in our life is that if we are struggling to have joy in our life, oftentimes God is also growing us in kindness or in goodness or self-denial. Might be thinking, you know, I, I, I'm lacking self-control in my life. But look elsewhere. Where else is God growing you? Maybe he's growing you in patience. Or maybe you're not as gentle as you ought to be. In your words and your actions and your deeds. I know brothers like that for sure. They are the most loving people. They are the most faithful people. All of that to say, listen, don't be discouraged if you are not perfect right now. That's not how sanctification looks like. Sanctification is a process. It is incremental progress. Where you might be struggling in one area, God is growing you in another. And listen, Scripture is very clear, right? At the end of the day, regardless of where you're struggling, Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who will ultimately bring us to the other side. That's not on us. What is on us, as we talked about, is obedience. It's to, to put to death sin, to put away the desires of the flesh, the old self, to put on Christ. That's on us. That's our responsibility as per our passage, as per God's word. But to bring us from glory to glory, that's Christ. That's, that's his responsibility. Here's an invitation as we close. Believers, eat sin in your life. Be disgusted over it. Whatever it might be. Be disgusted over it. Be, hate it. Recall to mind the consequences of sin. Recall to mind the, 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 the damage that sin can cause, has caused in your life. Stop going back to the corpse of sin. Stop going back to, to that pride. Stop going back to pornography. Stop going back to, to, to your self-righteousness and greed and covetousness and all of those things. They are dead. They no longer benefit you. You have, you have no comfort there. Regard it as dead and put on Christ instead. Put on the characteristics of Christ mentioned in our passage. Kindness and gentleness. Forgiveness, gratitude, worship. And then for the lost, for the lost who is hearing my voice, call, the invitation for you is to turn to Christ. Don't live for yourself anymore. Listen, Christ has made a way so that you no longer have to be bound to the urges of your flesh. Christ has made a way so that you can find real and true identity in Him. 
In his righteousness, Christ has made a way so that you can experience real forgiveness and love, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Turn to him. Put your hope in him. Put your faith in him that he has done this. That his death on the cross and his victory in the grave has accomplished this for you. Turn to Christ. But understand that turning to Christ also requires you to repent. Again, that's what repentance means. You were going one way, now you're going the other, the opposite way. Towards Jesus. Repent. Church, we must put to death sin in our lives. If we want to curve the, the cravings, if we want to no longer be drawn to sin, we must put to death sin in our lives. We must put away the old self. Who we were before Christ. The, 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 the self that was tainted by sin, that, was, that loved sin, that, that, that delighted in the passions of the flesh. That thought like the world. We must put it away. We must put on Christ. As, been, as we have been Reminded time and time again from Puritan preachers. For only when sin is bitter, will Christ taste sweet. Let's pray. Father, our prayer in this sacred moment is the prayer of the psalmist to reveal in our hearts any impurities, any sinful thing. Reveal in our hearts, O oh Lord, any sin in our lives that we have regarded as pleasurable, as desirable, as comforting. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would put in our minds a fresh disgust. A fresh horror towards sin and all its works. That the thought of it, O oh God, would, would cause us, O oh Lord, to feel uneasy, to feel sick. And the thought of it even being in our lives as children of yours, as holy and chosen, as set apart, as people who have been saved, who are citizens of heaven, that the thought of that putrid sin being in our lives would cause us to grieve and to mourn. Remind us, O oh Lord, that we have died with Christ. That all our desires for the world, all our cravings for it, all our inclinations for the world has been crucified with Christ on the cross. And now that we, now we are alive with our Savior, given new desires, 
given new things to delight in. Good things, beautiful things, hopeful things. Turn, Father, I pray, turn your children's affections away from the world and towards you, towards your things, towards your kingdom. Help us to die to self, to take up our cross daily and follow after you. Help us to renew our minds and our hearts in your word so that we might produce Lord, real praise and genuine worship and to know your will and purposes for our lives. Help us, oh God, because we are so prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love, prone to to turn to the left hand and to the right. And we know that it's only by your spirit, by your strength, by your grace and mercy that keeps us on your path. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would move amongst your people and empower us. Choose life and not death. Choose the works of your kingdom and not the kingdom of this world. Have mercy on us, O oh God. And I pray, O oh Lord, for the lost who have yet to put their faith and trust in you, that you would regenerate their hearts, that they might see, O oh Lord, these realities as more desirable in their sin, more desirable than the things of this world, that your light would be beautiful and that darkness would be ugly, oh God. Open up hearts and minds, oh God, and cause us to walk in your righteousness. We pray for these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.